Section 5 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Harvard. Chapter 5. Stephen Girard. I do not value fortune. The love of labor is my sheet anchor. I work that I may forget, and forgetting, I am happy. Stephen Gerard. When we make a census of the sensible and count the competent, we cannot leave out the name of William Penn. He was the founder of the city of Philadelphia and of the great commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and gave name and fame to both. In this respect of being founded by an individual, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and the state of Pennsylvania, are unique and peculiar in all the annals of American history. Yet Philadelphia has no monument to Penn, save the hazy figure of a dumpy nobody surmounted by an enormous hat, all lost in the incense of commerce upon the topmost pinnacle of the city hall. If Philadelphia had been sky-piloted by her orthodox Witherspoons and Albersons, by her Converses and Conwells, as if they have thought her to love her enemies and then hold balances true by hating her friends, that Cleo, so record for history, is no longer a lie agreed upon. In her magnificent park and in her public squares, Philadelphia has done honor in bronze and marble to Columbus, Humboldt, Schubert, Goth, Schiller, Garibaldi, and Joan of Arc. But Mad Anthony Wayne and that fearless fighting youth Decatur are absolutely forgotten. Dr. Benjamin Rush, patriot, the near and dear friend of Franklin, and the man who welcomed Thomas Paine to Pennsylvania and gave him a desk where he might ply his pen and write his pamphlet Common Sense, sleeps in an unknown grave. You will look in vain for effigies of Edgar Allan Poe, who was once a Philadelphia editor, of Edwin Forrest, who, lion-like, trilled her boards, of Rittenhouse, mapping the stars, of Dr. Kane, facing Arctic ice and northern light, of Dr. Evans, who filed and filled the teeth of royalty and made dentists popular, of Bartram, Gross, or Lydie. Fulton lived here, yet only the searcher in dusty, musty tomes knows it. Benjamin West, who founded England's Academy of Painting, is honored in Westminster Abbey, but Harrisburg, too busy in her great game of grab and graft, knows not his name. Robert Morris, who was rewarded for his life of patriotic service by two years in a debtor's jail, is still in a cell, the key of which is lost, and Sully, Peel, Taylor, Walter, and Fitch mingle their dust with his. Yet all this might be forgiven on the plea that were so many names of this strong and powerful bit for recognition, a good way to avoid jealousies is to ignore them all. So speaks proud and pious Philadelphia, snug, smug, prosperous, priggish, and pedantic Philadelphia, but how about these five supremely great names? William Penn, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, Stephen Girard, and Walt Whitman. Oh, dear friends, innocent of friendship, will you forever try to smother these by your silence simply because they failed to do theological goose-step on your order as your bum beetles marked time with their staves? Oh, ye cities and nations, cherish, I pray you, the names of your heroes in business, art, finance, and poetry, for only by them, and through them, shall the future know you. Have a care, ye cities, for the treatment that ye accord to these, living, and to their memories, that is, but the telltale record of your own heart and brain. Benjamin Franklin founded the Philadelphia Public Library, the Philadelphia Hospital, the Philadelphia Orphan Asylum, and the University of Pennsylvania. 
franklin was also much interested in good roads the building of canals the steam railroads were then of course a dream unguessed gerard got his philanthropic impetus from franklin gerard had watched the progress of the university of pennsylvania and he had become convinced that it fell short of doing the good it might do it shot too high franklin had a beautiful contempt for harvard he called it a social promotion plan and thereby got the lasting enmity from john adams and his son john quincy adams and also john hancock franklin had hoped to make the university of pennsylvania a different school but after his death it followed in exactly the harbor lines it fitted prosperous youth for the professions but it left the orphan and the outcast to struggle with the demons of darkness discarded and forgotten gerard founded his college with the idea of helping the helpless thomas jefferson also had impressed gerard greatly gerard once made a trip to ponticello and he spent two days at the university of virginia this was really remarkable for time with gerard was a very precious commodity thomas jefferson was the man who introduced classic architecture into america all of those great white pillars that front the mansions of virginia and in fact of the whole south had their germ in the reign of jefferson who rebelled in all that was greek jefferson was a composite of socrates plato and aristotle and if socrates was not the first jeffersonian democrat then who was socrates dwelt on the rights and virtues of the demos the common people jefferson uses the expression again and again and was the one man to popularize the word democrat when jefferson wearing his suit of butternut homespun rode horseback up to the washington capitol and tied his horse and walked over to the office of the chief justice and took the oath of office as president of the united states his action was essentially socratic gerard got his ideals both of architecture and of education from jefferson gerard was too busy to do much original investigating for he was a very rich man so he did the next best thing and the thing that all wise busy men do he picked a few offers and banked on them gerard loved benjamin franklin thomas jefferson and thomas paine and one reason why he was drawn to them was because they all spoke french and he had a high regard for the french people franklin and jefferson were each sent on various important diplomatic missions to france paine was a member of the french assembly and gerard never ceased to regret that paine was saved from the guillotine by that happy accident of the deaf messenger chalking the inside of his cell door instead of the outside if they had only cut off his head he then would have been recorded in american school books as the honorable thomas paine assistant savior of his country instead of being execrated as tom paine the infidel say gerard in the time of gerard the names of franklin jefferson and paine were reviled renounced and denounced by good society and it was in defending these men that gerard brought down upon himself the contumely that endures in attenuation at least even unto this day let the facts stand franklin thought gerard the philosophy of business and fixed in his mind the philanthropic bias jefferson thought gerard the excellence of the demos and at the same time gave him an unforgettable glimpse of greek architecture paine taught gerard the iniquity and folly of a dogmatic religion the religion that was so sure it was right and so certain that all orders were wrong that it would if it could force humanity at point of this world to accept its standards franklin and paine were citizens of philadelphia and jefferson spent many months there the pavements that had echoed to their tread were daily pressed by the feet of gerard their thoughts were his and when pestilence settled on the city like a shadow and death had marked the dark spots of more than half the homes in the city with the sign of silence gerard did not absolve himself by drawing a check and sending it to a committee by mail not he he asked himself what would franklin have done under these conditions 
and he answered the question by going to the past house doing for the stricken the dying and the dead what the pitying christ would have done can he been on earth gerard believed in humanity he believed in men as did franklin jefferson and Paine, and as did that or a great citizen of philadelphia who too was willing to give his life in the hospitals that men might live walt whitman no one ever called walt whitman a financier some have said that stephen gerard was nothing else in any event gerard and whitman between them hold averages true and they both believed in and loved humanity and here is a fact when we make up the composite man the perfect man taking our human material from american history we cannot omit from our formula benjamin franklin thomas jefferson thomas paine stephen gerard and walt whitman stephen gerard was born at bordeaux france in seventeen hundred and fifty he died at philadelphia in eighteen hundred thirty one immediately after his death there was printed a book which purported to be his biography it was the work of a bank clerk who had been discharged by gerard this man had been close enough to his employer to lend plausibility to much that he had to say and as the author called himself gerard's private secretary people with prejudices plus pointed to the printed page's authority the volume served to fill the popular demand for pishments it was written with exactly the same intent that Cheatham, who wrote his life of thomas paine brought to bear the desire was to damn the subject for all time besides that it was a great business stroke calumny was made to pay dividends to libel the dead is not in the eyes of the law a crime no such book as this life of gerard could ever have been circulated about a living man once upon a time an ass kicked a lion but the lion was dead yet this libelous production was reprinted as late as eighteen hundred ninety cheatham's book was quoted as an authority on thomas paine until the year nineteen hundred when moncure d conway's exhaustive life made the pious prevaricators absurd from being a bitter infidel a hater of humanity grossly ignorant and wholly indifferent to the decencies we now view gerard as a lonely and pathetic figure living out his long life in untiring industry always honest direct frank handicapped by physical defects wistful in his longing for love helpless to express what he felt with a heart that went out to children in a great willing desire to give them what fate had withheld from him stephen gerard's parents were lowly and obscure people they were catholics his father was a sailor and fisherman fear hate superstition ignorance ruled the household when the father had money it went for a strong drink or to the priest probably it would have been as well if the priest had gotten it all the mother went out as servant and worked by the day for her more fortunate neighbors the children cared for one another the word care can be used to express a condition of neglect and indifference it might be pleasant to show if possible that the mother of stephen gerard had certain tender womanly qualities but the fact is that no such qualities were ever manifested if there was ever any soft sentiment in her character the fond father of his flock had kicked it out of her that she was usually able to hold her own in fair fight was the one redeeming memory that the son held concerning her stephen was the eldest of the brood he attended the parochial school and learned to read his playmates called him by a french term meaning twisted he was eight years of age before he realized that the names his mother called him by were of contempt and not of endearment walleye and mudsucker literally the vocabulary of a fishwife then he knew for the first time that his eyes were not like those of other children 
that one eye had a bluish cast in it and turned inward. That night he cried himself to sleep thinking over his dire misfortune. At school, when he read, he closed one eye, and this made the children laugh. So much did their taunts prey upon him that he ran away from school to escape their gibes. One of the friars gray caught him, whipped him before the whole school, put a dunce cap on his head, and stood him on a high chair. Then his humiliation seemed complete. He prayed for death. At home, when he tried to tell his mother about his trouble, she laughed and boxed his ears for being a cry-baby brat. Back in this boy's ancestry somewhere, there must have been a stream of gentle blood. He was a songbird in a cuckoo's nest. When the military band played, his spirit was so moved that he shed tears. But when his mother died, and her body was placed in a new board coffin made by a neighbor who worked in the shipyard, he admired the coffin, but could not cry even when the priest pinched him and called him hard-hearted. He could not cry, even with his twisted eye. His mother, as a lovable being, had gone out of his life even before she died. He could only think what a beautiful coffin she had and what a great man it was who made it. And this man who made the coffin gave him a penny, perhaps because the boy so appreciated his handiwork. Stephen unconsciously warned him on the side of art. It's a terrible thing to kill love in the heart of a child. That popular belief that we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity, Gerard once said was true in his case, at least. Yet so wondrous are the words of God, the hate and brutality visited upon their child went into the making of his strong and self-reliant character. He never said, My mother's religion is good enough for me. He despised her religion and that of the friar's gray, who punished boys to make them good. His mind turned inward. He became silent, secretive, self-centered, and his repulsive exterior served him well as a tough house to hide his finer emotions. In a few months, or was it a few weeks, after his mother's death, the father married again. The stepmother was no improvement on the mother. She had loved the ideas of discipline and being minded. No doubt that little Stephen, crooked in eyes, crooked in body, short and swart, with brown, bare legs, was stubborn and willful. He looked the part all right. His brown, bare legs were a temptation for the stepmother's will of switch. He decided to relieve everybody of the temptation to switch his legs by running away to sea and taking his brown bare legs with him. There was a ship at the docks about to sail for the West Indies. He could secrete himself among the bales and barrels, and once the ship was out of port, he would come out and take chances on being accepted as cabin boy. They could do no more than throw him overboard anyway. He told his little sisters of his intention. They cried, but he didn't. He hadn't cried since he was eight years old and his cheerful biographer says he never shed a tear afterward, and I guess that is so. At two o'clock in the morning, he whispered goodbye to his little sleeping sisters. He did not kiss them. He never kissed anybody in his whole life, his biographer says, and I guess that may be so too. He stole downstairs and out into the moonlight. The dog was only a quarter of a mile away. The ship was to sail at daylight on the turn of the tide. There was much commotion going on around the boat, battering down hatches and doing the last few necessary things before braving the reeling deep. Little Stephen was watching his chance to get aboard. He was going as his tow away. A man came up to him. It was the captain, and before the lad could escape, the man said, Here, I want a cabin boy. Will you go up? The boy thanked God that it was night, so the captain could not see his crooked eye and gasped, Yes, yes. The cook was making coffee in the galley for the stevedores, who had just finished loading the ship. The captain took the boy by the hand and, leading him up the plank to the galley, told the cook to give him a cup of coffee and a biscuit. 
The ship pushed off and hoisted sail just at daylight on the turn of the tide. The tide, too, had turned for Stephen Girard. A very little observation will show that physical defects, when backed up by mental worth, transformed themselves into beauty spots. To be sure, no one was ever so bold as to speak of Gerard's blemishes as beauty spots, but the fact is that his lovely face and ungraceful body were strong factors in making him a favorite of fortune. Handsome is that handsome does. Disadvantages are often advantages. They serve as a stimulus and bring up the best. Young Gerard had long arms and short legs, and could climb fast and high, and he could see more with his one eye than most men could with two. He expected no favor on account of his family or his good looks, and so made himself necessary to the captain of the craft as a matter of self-preservation. Not all sea captains are brutal, nor do all sailors talk in a horse, girl, shift their quids, hitch their trousers, and preface their remarks with shiver my timbers. That first captain was whom Stephen Gerard's sail was young, twenty-six, a mere youth, with a first mate twice his years. He was mild-mannered, gentle-voiced, and owned a copy of Voltaire's philosophical dictionary. His name is lost to us, even the name of his ship has found her in the fog, but that he was young, gentle, and read Voltaire are facts recorded in the crooked and twisted handwriting of Stephen Gerard, facts which even his blackguard biographer admitted. The new cabin boy was astonished that one so young could be captain of a ship. He was also astonished that a person who gave orders in a gentle voice could have them executed. Later, he learned that the men whose orders are always obeyed do not talk loudly nor in guttural. This first boyish captain thought Gerard a splendid lesson, to moderate both manner and voice and be effective. Of that first boyish about all we know is that the boy slept on a pile of gunny sacks, that the captain let him read from the philosophical dictionary, that he polished the bright work until it served as a mirror, that the captain smiled his approval, and that the boy, short and swart, with bullet head, followed him with one eye and worshipped him as deity. Men do not succeed by chance. Chance may toss you into a position of power, but if you do not possess capacity, you can never hold the place. John Gerard gravitated from the position of cabin boy to clerk. From this to mate came by easy stages, and so much as a matter of course that it isn't worthwhile to mention how. By the law of France, no man under twenty-five could be captain of a ship, but when Gerard was twenty-two, we find a ship owner falsifying the record and putting the boy down as twenty-five, on the obliging off of the boy's father, who we hope was duly paid for his pains. At twenty-four, Captain Stephen Gerard sailed his sloop, La Miable Louise, around Sandy Hook and up New York Bay. Ship captains, then were merchants, with power to sell, trade and buy. The venture was a success, and John Gerard took the liberty of picking up a cargo and sailing for New Orleans, his knowledge of French being a valuable asset for that particular destination. Matters were prosperous, and Gerard was twenty-six, just the age of that heroic captain under whose care he first set sail, and the age of the Corsican when he conquered Italy. Gerard had ceased to wonder about boys, braving waves, and going upon the stormy sea in ships. It was in July, 1776, call it July 4th, that Captain Stephen Gerard was skirting the coast of the Atlantic, feeling his way through a fog toward New York. He was not sure of his course, and was sailing by death reckoning. Suddenly, the fog lifted. The sun stood out, a great golden ball in the sky. The young captain swung his glass along the horizon, and with his one good eye saw a sail. It was bearing down upon him. It was coming closer. In an hour, it was a mile away. He realized that he was the objective point. 
It was a British cruiser, and he realized that he was to be forced upon the beach or captured. Gerard was not a praying man, but he prayed now for a friendly cobble bay or the mouth of a river. The fog rolled that way to the west, the shoreline showed sharp and clear, and there, a half mile away, was the inviting mouth of Chesapeake Bay. At least Gerard thought it was, but it proved to be the mouth of the Delaware. Gerard crowded on all sail. The cruiser did the same. Night settled down. Before morning, Gerard's little craft was safe under the frowning forts of the Delaware, and the cruiser had turned back seeking fresh prey. End of Section 5 Stephen Gerard, Part 1